appreciate your presence very much. We're honored to have uh, several that are visiting with us, and we uh, thank you for being here. Not be too many. Um, uh, we've been talking. Uh, we had a series uh, in Romans, and we talked about the assurance of the believer. Then we had a series, and we talked about the, uh, the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit dwells within us, how we get that Holy Spirit in us. And uh, Brother Danny talked to us as, he, as we concluded that series last week, and he talked to us about this war that we're in, this war that we're fighting against principalities and powers, and we're fighting against this Satan, this devil that's wily, that's, that's a trickster that uh, tries to get us to do things we shouldn't do. And I got to thinking about that, and I ran across some passages in Second Peter chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you might turn there. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in the first chapter of Second Peter. Second Peter lists a, a list of what I would call, call characteristics, or quality, quality characteristics that a person should have. And there's a lengthy list, and we'll go through that list, but I don't want to spend so much time on the list as I want to spend time kind of surrounding that list. Because Peter talks to us about why that list is important. And I think as Christians, we need to understand sometimes why the list is important. We spend time in our daily lives making decisions every day, and we need to make sure that those decisions we're making, we're making them through the right prism, through the right glasses. I've entitled the lesson this morning, Eye Examination. Some of you heard about it, or some of you had made comments this morning. Sister Barney said, I had my eyes examined this week, and I said, well, maybe you don't need to be here. But the, uh, the, uh, the point of it is that we're going to talk about, obviously, some spiritual applications of uh, that eye examination. If you look at Second um, Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse number 3, and I'm reading out of the uh, English Standard Version, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So I'm a graphical person. I like pictures. So I took this because there was so much in this uh, in this little paragraph that the Apostle Peter writes to us. And I made a graph, and it looks like this. So we're here in the world. We've got our sinful desires. We've got the corruption of this world. And that's the way Jesus found us when he came. From all of eternity, that's the way we had been. People had been sinful they had sinful desires. It was this corrupt world around them. But God's power delivered to us everything that we need for life and godliness. And he delivered that through the knowledge of Jesus. And since we've got Jesus that came, and we've got that great example that he was for us, we've got the death and the burial and the resurrection, and we've got the glorious ascension of Jesus to the throne, and he's reigning over his church today. Because we have that, he has called us to be to his glory and to his excellence. He's called us to be something more than we are. And because he's called us to be that, he has also made to us these precious and great promises. And he's given us a way through the, to become partakers of his divine nature. And because we have all of this, he has given 
has taken this sinful nature in, in, a, in a way to escape the corruptness that's in this world. Now, if that's all Peter had said, that would probably be enough. That would be great comfort to us, right? He's given us a way. But that's not all Peter says. He goes on to say, hey, because of all of that, let's move on. Let's talk about some things. And so he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And your virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts it off and he says, for this very reason. Well, for what reason? Well, for the reason that we just talked about. Because Jesus came and because he's done all of this and he's called us to this excellence, this glory, because he has given us a way to escape the corruptions and the sinful desires that we have in our life for that very reason. Make every effort. And that phrase, make every effort, I think if you if you have an old King James, it probably has the word diligent there. That means put everything you've got, all of your focus, into this, into the things we're about to talk about. For this very reason, put all of your focus and all of your effort into these things. Now, when you put those two phrases together, there's a couple of things that come to mind to me. Number one, they don't appear to me to be optional. I don't think Jesus came down here as an option. It said for the very reason that Jesus came down here, for that reason, make every effort or focus on doing these things. So first of all, that phrase in context of what he just talked about, what he's about to talk about, doesn't come across to me as optional. But it also comes across to me as a want to and not a have to. So people ask me all the time, you know, if I become a Christian, do I have to give up drinking? Do I have to quit cussing? Do I have to? Do I have to go to church every time the doors are open? Do I have to? Do I have to? Do I have to? In context of what he just said about what Jesus did for us, I think we need to get that language out of our vocabulary. It needs to become, I get to. I get to go to church. I get to serve the Lord. I get to escape the corruptions of this earth. I get to escape these lustful desires. Because the Christian life is the better life to live. I get to, not I have to. He's given us something that's far better than this world. If we'll quit focusing on the world and start focusing on Him. So think about that in the context of that phrase that He says, to supplement your faith. You know, faith, I, I, I get a little bit of a... I've been trying to figure out what's the difference between belief and faith. You know, He says we've got to believe. Then it says we've got to have faith on Him. We've got to believe in Him and faith on Him. And, and I get to kind of play with those words and what they mean in my life. I was doing some research the other day, not for this sermon, but for our, uh, uh, our meeting coming up. The Brotherhood meeting will be here in Denton in 2014. And one of the things we're going to talk about, I think, is historical proofs of Jesus. And so I was just doing some research on that the other day. I got on Wikipedia. And so, there's a difference between faith and knowledge, right? 
on Wikipedia as liberal or conservative or whatever that might be. I don't know anything about it other than it's an open source encyclopedia. It says there's four things about Jesus that 90 to 95% of all historians agree on. Number one, there was a Jesus. Number two, he was born between the year 3 and 7 A.D. Number, number two, did I say three? Number three, he was baptized by a man named John the Baptist. And number four, he was crucified by Pilate on a cross. That is, those are unequivocal. Everybody agrees on those four things. So you don't have to have faith in those. Those are proven facts to us. But you have to have faith on those great and precious promises. You've got to have faith that all of the stuff that the apostles filled in for us and the Holy Spirit filled in us, in for us about that man that lived, that God that lived among us. You've got to have faith in those things. And when I think about faith, you can't help but think about Hebrews, right? Hebrews has this long list of all the, the men and women and incidents of faith and what happened. There should be a long list. There's a long list in Hebrews. Trust me. Here, I'll read it to you. I'll read it to you. In Hebrews, there's a long list. It talks about the people of old. The universe was created. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. It talks about the walls falling of Jericho. It talks about Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, it talks about all of those folks, and then it goes on to say in the next chapter, it says, seeing that we are surrounded by all of these great witnesses of faith, let us lay aside the sin that so easily besets us, and let us run the race that us. So we, we understand this thing about faith, that it's the grounding, it's the, it's the, it's the peace that grounds us. I'm going to make the notes out of what I'm saying. It's the faith that grounds us. It goes on then to talk about virtue. And virtue is nothing more than the, um, the concrete uh, proving of our faith. It's that... Um, is the moral excellence. Faith is, or virtue, I'm sorry, is that moral excellence, that, that concreting of our faith. It's where our faith is shown through to the world. When you talk about virtue, the, you know, there's things like, you know, your values, your morals, those kinds of things come into play. We had a little incident at work last week where um, they played a trick on me. Imagine that. And those of you that know me know how well I usually, uh, I don't take that and this one was especially bad because the trick involved a violation of our company values and it involved a violation of my moral, ethical code. And they found out very quickly that they didn't think that was funny. Very quickly they found that out. So I had a nice little conversation with my executive assistant. I had a nice little conversation with the group manager that runs my commercial group. And I said, we don't do those kind of things because they violate my, my virtue, my moral, ethical code. 
And you guys know how I take that stuff so seriously. But it was kind of funny, but it wasn't funny. It, uh, I'll tell you later if you want to know what, the, what it was all about. But virtue is that uh, the concrete. I'm going to spend a lot of time on these, number one, because you can't see them. Number two, because, again, it's the stuff around it. It says to add to that virtue knowledge. And so when I think about the things this list, and I think about where I am as a person, you know, this is a time of year where we spend time with family, we spend time at Christmas, if that doesn't offend anyone. It's a, it's a time that our nation at least celebrates the birth of Christ. I don't know that we know when he was born, but we get together and we celebrate those things. But for me, it's also a time of reflection. I reflect back on, hey, what happened in 2013? And what do I need to do to be better in 2014? And that's the purpose of the lesson this morning, is to talk about these things. And you should be asking yourself questions about how strong is my faith? Where is my level of faith? Where is my level of virtue? Where is my level of knowledge? So when you think about knowledge, you think about the Bible, right? You think about reading the Bible. And we preach a lot from this pulpit that you need to read. You need to study. You need to understand what God expects from you out of His Word. That just hearing it preached a couple of times a week may not be enough. It won't be enough. You need to get into God's Word. So in 2014, how are you doing with knowledge? The next one is self-control. And i got to tell you, this is my weakest one. This is my weakest one. Because self-control talks about a lot it encompasses a lot of things. It encompasses your, all of your desires, and it's talking about keeping those desires in control. So when we moved uh, in 1999, we moved out of a small 1,200, 1,300-square-foot home, and we sold a lot of the stuff that we had because we just didn't want to move it. We were moving into a new home. And when we got there, we didn't have enough furniture for all of our rooms. We actually lived for a few months on blow-up furniture. Some of you visited my home and sat on that blow-up furniture when we first moved. So we didn't even have enough stuff to fill the house. Now that has flown, flowed out of the house into the garage, out of the garage into a storage unit, and we're talking about maybe we either need a bigger house or a bigger storage unit. Maybe we need a little self-control. Maybe we need to quit spending so much and buying so much stuff. But what are we going to do next week, right? We don't have a place to put it, but next week we're going to go buy more stuff. For us, for me, I've got a problem with my, my materialism. I've told that I've confessed that to you before. I've got a problem with that. The Lord has blessed me financially because I've got this money sitting over here and these wants and these desires, and there's really nothing to keep me from doing it. I just spend it and get more stuff. But it has to do with everything. It has to do with anything you could want. It could be money, it could be possessions, it could, it could be relationships, it could be uh, bad relationships, relationships you shouldn't get into, relationships, you know, all these kind of things. Just talking about controlling all of your desires. That's what self-control is. Then it goes on to steadfastness. And again, steadfastness, we talked a little bit about that. The old uh, King James Version calls it patience. Patience or endurance or steadfastness. We talked about that last time when I talked about the weight. You guys remember that? I talked about in football. We used to have a weight on the end of a, on the end of a rope, and then a, there was a 
broom handle, for lack of a better terms, and we'd have to we have to roll that weight up, and we'd have to roll it up, and we'd have to hold it. Our arms would start burning, and we're, we're, we've got that weight, and, and just to the point that you just can't hold it anymore. And finally, you drop it. That's this idea of steadfastness that you are underneath this weight, but you're able to hold it. You're able to endure. Our preacher used uh, this example, and, and I like it, so I'll, I'll use it. You know, how many times do we pray for steadfastness? Put me under such a low testament, Lord. Put me under a low So So our preacher used this example. He said, 2014 is in front of you. The Lord walks through the door and he comes through this morning and he says, I've got 2014, I've got two choices for you. Choice number one, it's a big great year for you. You're going to have that mate that you want. You're going to have the best jobs. You're going to have the new car. You're going to have the new house. You're going to have everything it is you want. I'm going to give it to you. It's going to be an awesome year. But at the end of the year, this is the Lord speaking, our relationship's not going to be any stronger. You're going to have everything you want and you're everything you need, you know, I'm going to bless you beyond your imagination. But our relationship's not going to be any stronger. That's door number one. Door number two is, it's going to be a rough year. It's going to be some pain. It's going to be some crying. You're going to lose some people you love. But you and I, our relationship, there's going to be an intimacy between us that you'll you never had before with me. You're standing at the back, you got to make that choice. When you walk out this morning, what are you choosing for 2014? Careful what your answer is. Now, sometimes he uses this life, and sometimes he uses the things and the circumstances around us to make us stronger. He says we need to be more steadfast. I heard another preacher say one time that God is not so much concerned with our circumstances as he is with our character. And so a lot of people come to church hoping that God's going to change their circumstances. But what he's really trying to do is change your character. He's trying to change your heart. He's trying to change who you are. He's trying to make you more like him. And that sometimes takes some steadfastness. Godliness, that just means we talk about godliness. That's reverence and respect towards God, a piety towards God. That's that's, that's internalizing everything that you know about God and putting on Him brotherly affection. Pretty easy to understand that means we're supposed to love each other. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we're supposed to love each other. We're supposed to love each other like family. So when somebody says something or does something in here to offend you, think of it like they're your spouse, right? Your spouse has said and done a lot of things over of your relationship, if you've been married any time at all, that offended you. You know, that you didn't like what they said, but you forgave them and you worked it out for them. Because you had a love and respect and you had a commitment to them. You made a commitment before God. You stood up before God and all the witnesses and you said, I'm going I'm to stick with this person. You made that commitment. And so you're willing to overlook those faults because you love them. That's what brotherly love is all about. That's the way we're supposed to be towards each other. We're supposed to overlook the things that we say and the things that we do that offend. And if they do offend us to the point we need to talk about it, then we go to Matthew 18 and we talk about face-to-face, one-on-one, go through the routine. To brotherly affection, um, we need to add love. And love is the 
obviously it's the best Corinthians top love, it's the Jesus top love, it's not the gooey love, it's the love that, uh, that he talks about in First Corinthians. It's the love that allowed him to be railed on and beaten and spit on and caught and nailed to the cross. His garments just disrespected, his garments that were cast in lots, and through all of that, the love that said, forgive them, Father, for they know what they do. That's the kind of love, that's the kind of bow that he puts around all of these things. He says, do all of these things. He says, if you do these things, you'll be ineffective or unfruitful. You will not be ineffective or unfruitful. So have you ever wondered what's going to be written on your tombstone? You know, what's that epic of path going to be? Or what are people going to say he was an effective person? The Bible says here, if you want to be effective, then do these things. If you live this way, you're going to really live a fruitful and effective life. Then it goes on, and this was the, uh, I wish the slide were up there, but it goes on to say, and this is kind of the crux of the whole matter, for whosoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, if you can see this, I'm going to turn this around here a little bit, so maybe, maybe you'll be able to see it. <coughs> So there's a pattern that comes up over here. And if you can see that, how many of you cannot see a number in that pattern? If you can see it. Okay, I'm, I'm the only one. Okay, there, trust me, according to Kat, who I love and adore and trust, she says there's a number in that pattern right there. So if you can't see a number, you are in, in, the, in, in with me, you are colorblind probably red or green color line because I can't see it. I'm told there's a number six. I trust that there's a number six there. But I can't see it. And that's just a small part about what blindness is. So every now and then I get to work and somebody kind of looks at me funny and I'm going, did my wife dress me funny today? Because I can't see the colors. And for all I know, she put something together that doesn't go together and people look at me funny. But she seldom ever does that without telling me. But color blindness is something that frustrates me, right? Because if people will say that's purple, I say no, it's blue, because I can't see the red. Blindness frustrates us, and the Bible says here that if we if we can't do these things, if we don't do these things, that we are so nearsighted that we are blind. If we don't have these qualities in us, so when you think about being nearsighted, that means I'm I'm making all the decisions. I'm doing everything about. That all these decisions I'm making are about what's right here. All I can see is what's right here, what's near. And when you think about what Brother Danny talked to us about last week, when he talked to us about the walls of the devil, and he talked to us about the armor that we've got to put on, and he talked about this warfare that's going on, those decisions are made right here too often. We make decisions about everything that we're going to do right here in front of us. The Bible says that when you're doing that, you're so nearsighted that you're blind. You can't see. What he's talking about is these great and precious promises. Those great and precious promises aren't things that are going to happen right here. So every day when we're making those decisions, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about doing something that's sinful, we're making those decisions in the here and the now. 
we're thinking about buying that thing we shouldn't buy or going to that place we shouldn't go. We're thinking about taking the drink we shouldn't take. And we're talking of talking about you know getting in, getting in a relationship that we shouldn't get in. Or we're talking those are things that are made right now. We're not thinking about how those things are going to affect our spouse. We're not thinking about how those things are going to affect our children. We're not thinking about how those things are going to affect our eternal destiny. Because we're making them right now. We're so nearsighted that we're blind. We can't see far off. In business, there's a, there's a deal called the time span theory. And the time span theory says that we pay people for their talents, but we also pay people on their abilities to see over time. So here's an example. I've got a, I've got a, a craftsman that works for me on the job site, right? He's a popular plumber, a welder. He's putting together this stuff, and he he can see just about one day's worth of work. He is doing whatever the foreman put in front of him to do that day. The foreman can see, okay, he can see a system. He can see a couple of days, maybe a week. The superintendent can see maybe 18 months into the future and build that job. A project manager can see the labor and the subcontractors. He can see all of that over an 18 month. A group manager can see my entire business on, the, on a piece of my business, maybe two and three years. I'm called to look five years into the future. My boss just said, Paul, 2023, we've been in business 10 years. This is what the next 10 years of Paul looks like. He's able to see 10 plus years into the future for us and to help us and to guide us in those. And the, the deal is that the people that can do those things, as you go further and further up that scale, the percentage of people that can do those things becomes less and less. So the people that can see 10 and 15 and 20 years into an organization's future, there's only about 2% of the population that can do that. But yet there's all these organizations. So the laws of supply and demand say... There's all of this supply out there. There's all this demand out there, but there's only 2 or 3% of the people that can do that. Guess what? i got to pay them a lot of money to keep them. And so we compensate based on somebody's ability to see into the future. Guess what the Lord does to He's going to compensate us based on our ability to see heaven and hell and to make decisions today that are long-term focused. If you're making decisions today, based on today, you're going to find those decisions to be improper decisions. It says you're so nearsighted that you're blind. You can't see for long. I heard another preacher say one time, if I could take every one of my parishioners, that probably means he may have been Catholic, I don't know. If I could take every one of my parishioners and dangle them over hell for 15 seconds, I'd have a whole different church. And wouldn't that be true? Because you wouldn't have to be farsighted. <laughs> That'd be nearsighted, right? You'd be like, ow, ow. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have to be farsighted. You wouldn't have to look into the future and think about what heaven and hell is going to look like. It'd be right now, up front and personal. And you'd make different decisions. Today, you've got to make those decisions based on faith and those great and precious promises that you're talking about. And he tells us that if we'll do that, that there's some uh, really cool stuff for us. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, But it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the hearts of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. God has told us that he's gone, that Jesus has told us he's gone to prepare a place for us. And if he's gone to prepare that place for us, that he's going to come back. He's going to get us and He's going to take us there. We've got to have faith in that place. And we've got to have enough faith 
in that place to make far-sighted decisions, not near-sighted decisions. So it's all about focus. It's all about focus and what we are putting our time and our energy into. Are we focused on whether the Cowboys are going to win this afternoon and maybe make it to the next game and maybe get to the playoffs? Are we focused on what we're going to do for Christmas, for the holidays, and who's coming, and where they're going, and what's going on, and who's doing what? Is that where our focus is? Or is our focus on adding to our faith? That's what he calls us to be focused on as Christians. In 2014, you're going to turn the corner here in a couple weeks. You've got a whole year ahead of you. My call is that you look at First Peter and you look at those words and you start planning your 2014. It's going to be a busy couple of weeks. You're going to have a lot of friends and relatives about you. You're going to have a lot of things going on. I would encourage you to get some alone time. In Second uh, Peter there in chapter 10, it says, Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Remember what we talked about in Romans, right? The assurance of the believer. He says right here, if you'll practice these qualities, you won't fall. He doesn't say if you read them and forget them. He says if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So if you want to be assured of your salvation, goes on to say, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about this morning. I wanted to try to, to, to take the Roman series, the stuff that uh, we talked about, specifically the stuff that Danny talked about last week, and, 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 and get us to thinking about what can we do to change? What are some practical things that I can do in 2014? There's a very practical list there of things that you can work on. Work on adding those things and supplementing those things and building those things up in your life. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning, if you're a member of the church and you need prayers, if you're not a member and you'd like to become a member of the church, we offer that opportunity as we stand and sing the song. We'll